Assalamu alaikum and welcome to another episode of the Dr. Will Show, where I interview educators and entrepreneurs on leveling up. Each episode, I zoom in someone who's dope, or would just sit back and have a conversation on what it means to live your best life. Now, if this is your first time checking out the podcast, this is the Mobile University for Entrepreneurs, and I'm your host, Dr. Will. Today's guest is Michelle Eaton. She is amazing. You check out the Twitter bio. I'm like, ooh, director of this. I, I'm looking at the job title. Like, I'm like, where where can I get your job? Because that look <laughs> that sounds awesome. Um, involved with the ISTE uh, online blending network, and has this book out in which we're going to be talking. This interview will center around her book, The Perfect Blend. You know, it sounds like you know smoothie <laughs> or some way to describe a coffee drink it's the perfect blend and so we're going to be talking about her book and hopefully uh by the end of this interview you will go out and go ahead and get yourself a copy as we are finding ourselves still is in this digital environment uh while we're still in this pandemic so for those who be listening on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Simplecast, Stitcher, and Spotify, will you please introduce yourself, Michelle? Hi, well, that was quite an introduction. Thank you. Um, yes, I am Michelle Eaton. I am the Director of Virtual and Blended Learning for Metropolitan School District of Wayne Township in Indianapolis. Um, so I've been doing that for a few years now. I'll tell you, being the Director of Virtual and Blended Learning, um, was is a fun job, but it dramatically shifted a little bit there in March. Um, so it's been it's been great to see to work with teachers as we're trying to navigate online learning and hybrid and blending our classrooms. Uh, so that's what I do for a living. Um, normally, it involves overseeing course design for our online high school and our blended programs, and then K twelve professional learning around online and blended learning. So. That is what I do for a day job and then just had the book come out. Awesome. So I'm always curious as to how people got to where they are. So what did you think you would be doing when you were growing up? And how did you find yourself in K through 12 education? Oh, wow. That's a great question. Um, I left high school a little bit lost. I was interested in engineering and technology and science. I didn't, but didn't really know what I wanted to do. And um, I always came back to uh, teaching and helping others. And so I ended up, I, I went into elementary education. I honestly think I started college not really sure if that's what I wanted to do, but fell in love with it. And then how I got to online learning, it kind of fell in my lap a little bit. I came across this uh, master's program. I knew I wanted to get my master's degree. And there was this online program around educational technology. And I, I was kind of techie, I guess not really in my classroom that much, but um, I'm for sure a millennial. So I, I use technology personally. And uh, I thought this, this would make me a better teacher. And I'm a little embarrassed to admit that because it was online, I thought it would be easier. <laughs> so, um, so I signed up like this is an easy way to get a master's. And 
thankfully it wasn't, it was not easy at all. And it was one of the best learning experiences of my life. And I left that program thinking it was done so well in building relationships and helping me um, learn in a way that was directly uh, connected to what I was doing. And I, and I connected so well with my professors and, and my colleagues and the other students that I left thinking everybody deserves this kind of learning experience, not just not just adults who have to have it for flexible learning, not just kids that need credit recovery, but the kind of learning experience I wanted everyone to have. And so you start talking about that long enough, someone eventually makes the position for you. <laughs> and um, so I, I got to kind of create this position in my district as our online and blended options expanded. And here I am. All right. I mean, I didn't talk to my my district about it because uh, I'm I'm all in, and it's interesting how some people think online is easy, and I know for sure it's not. And for those who had to pick up out of nowhere to teach in March, they for surely know that mm -hmm. it is not, you know, an easy thing to do it is definitely for those who are self-motivated you know um so if you have a student and it's a different environment so that student at school who may not be doing work may thrive in an online environment so it's not necessarily you can say well that kid who appears lazy uh probably gonna be lazy online that's not necessarily the case but if you have a student who you know is having some difficulty, you know, face-to-face. That online environment may not be the first thing you look to uh, with that student, or even as an individual as yourself, if you know you got a little laziness in you. Um, <laughs> woo, it's a whole new world when you are accountable to yourself. Yeah, I often think, too, though, um, so much of when students lack motivation and engagement online, a, a lot of what the research tells us is it has, it's often not really defiance or, or even laziness that's the bigger issue. It's um, self-efficacy, the mm -hmm. belief that you're going to be successful. And when you don't think you are going to be, it's really hard to engage, especially when you're in a new context that might be anxiety inducing or unfamiliar to you. Um, and then the self-regulatory skills which are why we're successful adults, the, the making decisions that are in your best interest, even when they're not the, the fun decision to make. It's why um, I don't eat cupcakes for breakfast every day. It'd be a delicious decision. No one's here to tell me I can't, but I know it's not in my best interest. Um, it's why we go to meetings we don't wanna to go to or we show up to work on time. And our students aren't naturally coming to us as self-regulators. And these are things that we, we have to teach them. And I, I think that often what we find when we move online is that it's not a new problem. It almost puts a spotlight on um, problems that existed, but it's definitely uh, something you have to address pretty specifically and that looks different online than it does face-to-face, -face, which is a challenge that we're all kind of figuring out. Oh yeah. So you are the author of The Perfect Blend. What was the pain point behind you writing the book? So I've always felt, I'm a former second grade teacher, and uh, I used blended learning 
as a way to essentially clone myself in the classroom. I felt small group instruction was really critical to developing readers and writers. And I never felt great about the independent work that was happening to allow me to meet in small groups. I measured success in that environment based on compliance. Are my kids quiet and do they appear on task? So when the principal came in, she was happy. And, but really the, the practice that I did with, you know, file folder games or these laminated activities, I, I didn't really know if there was learning going on. It was at best, it was practice. At worst, it was practicing something that incorrectly. And so I learned that I could leverage online learning to create instruction and assessment activities independently that I could still engage with later asynchronously. Like I could still teach them while I'm working in a small group. And so it, it changed what learning looked like in my classroom. And so I wanted to create a guide for K-12 teachers and what that looks like. But the reality is, Blended learning is not a silver bullet. Personalized learning, online learning, Chromebooks one-to-one, -one, insert buzzword here, does not fix education. It doesn't transform learning in and of itself. Uh, we have to be really intentional with our designs um, and, and, and with how we structure that environment. And so I wrote the book and it's basically two parts. Uh, the first part is thinking about the in-person experience. If blended learning is a combination of face-to-face -face instruction and online instruction, the book is pretty much split up into those two parts. So um, the first part talks about creating the structures within your classroom to not only blend, but to use it to personalize learning, to give students agency and autonomy. And then the second is looking at uh, design principles, the things that we know about how we engage online that we can create online lessons that don't create obstacles for students, but make it easier for them to retain information and to, to develop proficiency. Um, so I was really excited about it. So I wanted to create something practical. Uh, I think every chapter you could read and try something the next week in your classroom. And that was really important to me. So let's get into sort of the, the practical definition of blended learning and what it looks like because with some teachers if they put kids on a remediation program that the district paid for then they're blending their classroom because they are you know if you follow a strict word for word literal examination of blended learning they are combining face-to-face -face with an online piece. Mm -hmm. Why is blended learning different from that? Why is it more than just saying, okay, after you complete this in your workbook or after we do this activity together, I want you to go spend the next 15 minutes on iReady or Moby Max or any other program? So that's a great question. Um, and I think, cause I get that question a lot, like does blended learning work? And the reality is it's kind of like saying, asking if, is, does lecture work? Well, there's a Latin teacher in my district that could give a master class on lecture. I could sit there and learn so much and just listen to him talk all day. And then other teachers, you know, I, I'm not a great lecturer. 
Um, do textbooks work? Well, give me a good textbook in the hands of a good teacher and it works. And blended learning in and of itself could be done poorly and it can be done well. So yes, the, the simple definition is any combination of online instruction and face-to-face -face instruction. And if I do those things poorly, I'm not gonna have great blended learning. I think when we see blended learning implemented well, there are a couple of things that are present. Um, one is student agency. So I think blended learning is a vehicle to help us personalize the experience for students. And when I'm talking about personalization as a word that gets thrown around, and I think the simplest way for me to think about it is it's the other side of the coin to differentiation. If differentiation involves the decisions teachers make um, to make learning accessible for students um, and help them be successful, personalized learning are the decisions students make to help themselves be successful. And I think blended learning is when done well, allows us to give some control over to students, whether it's in pace, path, time, or place of learning. I, I don't think that a blended environment has to have complete student control. It doesn't have to be the wild, wild west. Like we can, some, some content areas, you can give control over certain things and other things not. I think about math. I can't give a lot of control over path in a math class, but I can give them control over pacing. And maybe that's the thing that I give students some control over. So I think it helps us teach students those self-regulatory skills. It helps us give them some control over their learning. I think um, the, the other characteristic we see when it's done well is when the online learning and the face-to-face -face learning are directly connected. Mm -hmm. I don't think that having face-to-face -face instruction and then when I'm not meeting with students, they're just on Khan Academy or going through some adaptive software, even if that's great individualized instruction, I don't know that that is transformative or having a big impact. It's probably not hurting anything, but really the case studies I've seen where blended learning works really well is when the teacher can use data from the instruction that's happening asynchronously to drive instruction um, in small groups or to make those artful decisions live, when it frees a teacher up to do the thing that only a human can do, I think that's where blended learning is really powerful. Teachers have a million things on their plate. We can't do it all. And often people are really scared about online learning. It's this thing that's going to replace teachers when really I think we should let technology do what it does best so that we can save time to do the thing that only a human in the room can do. We have a pretty robot-proof profession um, and we should we should work with technology to make that happen. Michelle, mm. <laughs> I can't tell you how many times I have told teachers, just simply let technology do what it does best and you do what you do best. Uh, because I, I'm just trying to just simplify it for them. You know, I, I tell teachers all the time, you cannot assess faster or better and when I'm talking about assessment, I'm talking about the stuff that, you know, are, are sort of standard across the board, the multiple choice, the fill in the blank, the true and the false, and those type of things. You're not going to beat the computer in doing that. It's not going to happen. So let the computer, you know, you know, let Schoology, let all these programs do that. And where you can then do what you can do best as the teacher in terms of asking questions, facilitating inquiry. Uh, 
leading discussions, uh, bringing that sort of uh, clarification and pushback uh, back and forth with your students. And it still uh, amazes me how teachers have this mindset of control. Even administrators are like that, right? So they, even in, 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 in you have administrators in that thought process is if they walk in and, and the teacher isn't up giving a lecture, they're not teaching, right? If every kid is on the computer at the same time, that's a bad thing. And in the world we live in, in which education is changing, and, and when you talk about personalization and you talk about sort of meeting students where they are, I think everyone has to really sit back and understand that we cannot apply that model of the factory and how we were actually taught in school, basically allow that to be our view and our understanding of what education should look like now. Yep, absolutely. But I get why that change is scary too. We have, or why we want to control because so much of our accountability, so much of our evaluation, how we are uh, determined whether we're effective or not is based on other people. And so I think it feels pretty natural to want to control that as much as possible. Um, and, and so I, I get why I get why it's scary, but then when we can help develop students who are self-regulators, who know what it means to drive their own learning, to be independent learners, I think the, the benefits we see there are so much greater. But it's it's it can be a little scary. And I think, honestly, I think that is one of the best gifts we have this year. Of all the negative things we have uh, because of COVID and because of the constraints that we're under, whether we're socially or physically distant, is it's scary to do innovative things, to try something you're not sure is gonna work because you only have these students for a semester or for a year. And it's easy from, I think from our seats to talk about failing forward and taking risks, but really we can't fail too much because we can't, when we fail kids, um, that has a that has bigger implications and and that's scary. And so I get why it's hard to take risks or try something that we don't know is gonna work. And the gift that we've been given is that we don't have a choice. We can try things now that within constraints that once those constraints are lifted and we're back at full capacity, we can learn from this and improve education and get rid of the things. We have an opportunity right now to get rid of the things that have never been working in classrooms like we've never had before. Yes, so let me, let's jump into delivering that synchronous instruction online and looking at how much time we spend on it, right? So when you do this work, you know there's something called uh, sort of that cognitive overload where mm -hmm. an individual only has so much time in terms of attention span to connect and understand what they are learning to absorb it, to be able to, to keep it and maintain and work with it. 
we are seeing school districts who are telling teachers whether they're using Zoom or, or Google Meet or Skype, do that 45 minutes, do that hour, which we know based upon cognitive overload or cognitive workload, this is not going to work. Uh, particularly if you're talking about younger, younger kids, you know, what, how should they be in this environment designing that, that sort of, uh, not quite face-to-face, -face, but that, in, that digital instruction via that Zoom uh, so that they're actually giving students what they need? That is a great question. And it's, it's interesting because right now I also know that we're not necessarily working within ideal blended scenarios. There's plenty of schools where their only option to provide remote instruction and face-to-face -face instruction is for teachers to have to do it concurrently. So like a high flex environment. Um, I don't think having streaming instruction to students that are home, I don't think that's best practice. Um, I think it's really, really hard to do well and I feel for the teachers that are in that situation, but I also know that if you're in a small school district, that there may not be other options to provide learning for students. Um, so I'm fully aware of the constraints, um, but what I am seeing a lot is when we're all forced to move online, it's easy to spend our time in the thing that is most comfortable, and that's live online instruction. It's the thing that feels the closest to that face-to-face -face classroom experience. Um, but you're right. It's, it's not best practice. It's not super equitable as far as um, when students miss or aren't engaged. I think it's the hardest thing to teach well online too. Uh, when I think about PD that I lead, I dread the, the big webinar, like how am I supposed to keep 50 people that I can't see engaged? And I also think when we focus on whole group live instruction, our conversations move so quickly to compliance. Like how do I make sure that they're all accountable? This is when we start arguing about whether kids should have cameras on. I think about how can I make sure that everyone is paying attention and they're, they're not distracted doing something else. And it's not really about learning. So I think we should, in my perfect, like even remote learning um, environment, I would put the bulk of initial instruction in an asynchronous environment. And I would focus my, my live time in small group. Because that's the thing, even, even now working with adults, I dread the 50% webinar, keeping everyone engaged. I'm constantly thinking about compliance and how can I make sure I'm giving you know, professional growth points for this. I don't, we don't have to think about that when you have four people in a Google Meet, it's that interaction is more natural. And I think if I can design well, I think the, the problem is we don't know how to, we don't necessarily feel confident in our ability to design asynchronous online learning well as, as a way to teach. But if we can do that, I can pull data from that and spend my limited time I have live with students doing the thing that I, this most important role as a teacher. When I, if I were to list out all the things I do as a teacher, and prioritize it, talking in front of a class of students is not the most important thing I do. It's when I meet with small groups of students and I differentiate and I provide remediation and I meet them where they are. 
And if I have even less time to do that live, I'm not going to spend it doing whole group lectures. I'm going to spend it in those small groups because again, the technology can deliver that initial instruction. So that's what I would do. I'd love for us to start to see a shift from the big emphasis on live instruction. I think we're, we start there because it's what was comfortable, but I'm noticing we're, we're seeing things that some of us kind of predicted we probably were gonna see. What do you do when students don't attend? And an asynchronous, if, if it's all asynchronous, we can get them caught up. I can't, I can't retroactively get them to attend their Google Meet. So I'm hoping to see a shift happening soon. I hear you. So, I, you know, we know uh, there's various models uh, to blended learning, you know, whole group, station rotation, flex, flipped, um, I want to talk to you about the station rotation primarily because when you're in the elementary session, element, if you're an, an elementary teacher and someone says centers, you immediately know what that means. Mm -hmm. And so when you can say station rotation is like a center, there's an immediate cognitive association and they go, boom, I got it in terms of understanding exactly what it is. When you're talking about planning lessons for, for a station rotation in this environment in which some kids may be completely virtual or kids who are in, on a hybrid schedule, how should a teacher go about designing those lessons? Yeah, I think, I think that's tricky. And I honestly, I would recommend checking out, Catlin uh, Tucker is another uh, blended learning expert. Um, she's great. She has a blog post on station rotation in the era of social distancing that I would highly recommend folks Googling and finding. Um, she had some really good ideas about how to do that. What I'm seeing are teachers really leveraging um, breakout rooms or uh, video conferencing, but thinking about them as stationary stations. So uh, everything being kind of digital. And if you have students moving virtually into a station, kids can collaborate with each other even without being in a video conferencing room. So um, you can physically move students and try to keep them distant and facing each other and create opportunities like that. But uh, one of the powerful things about technology is that we can create activities where students are engaging with each other, whether they're having to stay six feet apart, whether there's a student at home I'm trying to work on it. This is a way we can connect our students no matter physically where they are. I would say, um, I think when you start doing that, it ends up looking more like the flex model. But one of the premises of my book is that I really don't care what you call it. Um, I think, I, I like to think about blended learning on a spectrum from one end where it's mostly face-to-face -face to the other end where it's mostly online. Any combination there along that spectrum is blended learning. and I, I don't want us to get caught in, in feeling like we have to, I'm committing to station rotation. I'm gonna do station rotation. I'm not gonna uh, move from it. There's so much flexibility that we can kind of evolve it based on our students' needs, based on what we're teaching. So I will, I will kind of say that when we start to do the, the virtual stations, it starts to maybe move into a flex model, especially if students can um, move through at their own, their own pace. But uh, when you're creating those activities, 
I would just, I think the one advice, one piece of advice I would give is to be really aware of student to student interaction. Um, what we don't want is it to be really isolating or, um, and as, as compliant as that room looks and as on task as students may be, if they're learning is social and we need students to engage with each other. So if I were to create stations, one's gonna be a small group with me and maybe that needs to be in a Google Meet um, with students that are home or maybe I'm gonna get, you know, chairs in a circle and we're gonna distance ourselves. One of them needs to be with me. And then the other stations, if I have one that's independent, I need to make sure that I have one that's collaborative in some way, whether that's leveraging collaborative tools like Google tools or Flipgrid or, or I have students um, actually engaging with each other. I think that is the, the critical thing that I would be looking for. Um, what I don't think is best practice is having students by themselves all day looking at a screen. Um, that's not leveraging the power of technology in a way that I think impacts um, learning in a really powerful way. Mm -hmm. Well, let's look at the digital classroom. And for me, when I say that, I'm talking about using Schoology or Blackboard or Campus and, and where you have that asynchronous piece where you can actually design a course that is aligned to whatever direct instruction you may do via Zoom or somewhere else. How, how should the, the teacher begin to sort of rethink that digital space? And what I mean by that is a lot of teachers, even though we're on Twitter and you have your job and I'm an instructional technologist and you know, we're all drinking that Twitter flavor of technology innovation. A lot of our colleagues, are, they're just not there. And now they're thrust upon this environment in which they don't have a choice. And they're trying to figure out, how do I make this happen, right? They have a lot of paper, right? So they got PDFs and worksheets and workbooks and Word docs out the wazoo. But when they're actually having to design that digital classroom, what are some of the strategies or best practices should they start to employ? That's a great question. I think three things. If we're, there are things to think about in online learning, but if I were to start and say, here are the three big things to consider. Um, I would say consistency, um, interaction and simplicity. So um, thinking about consistency, we, when we're creating our digital environment, we have to remember this is the classroom students are walking into. And if we, in my physical classroom, I might be teaching something new every day, um, but my students are still walking into the same room. And we still have um, some structure and a schedule in the day and there's consistency and that's important. And that safe space that we create for learning is, is important. Online, if all of our lessons look different every day, everything from the colors to the fonts to how we organize it, it's like kids are walking into a different classroom every single day. And um, that takes way too much cognitive load, uh, like you were talking about. I, if we're going, so if cognitive load is the effort it takes for our brain to process information, 
I want them to spend that learning. I don't want them spending it figuring out how to navigate today's lesson or adjusting to the new font I've introduced or, or what have you. So creating as much consistency in navigation, in the colors, in the design choices we make, uh, I think is, is important. I think being really aware. So the second thing is interaction. So regardless of how um, confident of an instructional designer you feel like, if you can be intentional to try to create three different types of interaction in your lessons, you're gonna have a highly engaging lesson. So um, create an opportunity for students to engage with each other in some way. Create an opportunity for students to engage with you. Uh, whether that means your presence in videos, you're responding on the flip grid or in the discussion or you're giving feedback. And then have create an opportunity for students to engage with the content. So moving from just static consumption of a video or I'm just reading, I'm doing something with that content. If you create a lesson that has those three things, um, despite how skilled you feel in designing online, you're going to have a good lesson. And then finally, and I think probably the most important thing is to remember it's absolutely okay to keep it simple and that's probably best. People are often surprised when I, I'm very techy, I know all the tools, part of my job is to support teachers. So I'm, I'm constantly learning new tools. I try to stay um, up to date on them. When it comes to the online lessons I design, I use five tools, that's it, that's my toolbox. I use, I find tools that are easy for me to use, that are easy for students to use that I can use in a lot of different ways. And I use them like crazy. And then I don't worry about the new shiny thing that comes out. If I can get it done with these five tools, then that's what I use. And I think part of what is so intimidating right now is that everybody's doing something. And so you hear the teacher down the hall that's, I'm using this tool. And then the teacher next to you is using another tool. And you feel like this pressure that I have to know how to do all of that too. When use your learning management system, Use that for 90%. If you can get the learning task done using the tools inside that platform, don't introduce a new web tool in there. Get it done, even if it's not as shiny or flashy or cool, do it there. Use your office suite. So if you're Google or Microsoft, um, those collaborative spaces you can do so much in. I use Google Docs for everything, or Google Slides and Google Docs from everything from manipulatives. I move digital text into a Google document so that students can annotate and, um, and highlight. I, those two things make up most of an online lesson. And then I have a couple of other tools that do things that I can't do there and that's it. And then I don't stress about feeling pressure to use a bunch of other things. And that also means when students get come into those lessons, once they learn how to use that, like if Padlet is your tool and you can use that for a lot of things, kids aren't having to constantly relearn a new tool. They can get straight into learning. And online, it takes so much more st structure um, things take a little bit longer for students to complete. And so by keeping things simple, you're going to make that easier for kids. Mm. So I want to stay with this for a minute. Um, how do teachers go about the process of vetting those core set of tools they're, they're going to be using? Because as you mentioned, you know, whether you get on Twitter or you just do a random search online, get on Facebook and you're going to hit, you know, like when school first started, everybody was just going eight crazy over Bitmoji. Uh, and all of these things that 
you know, pop up. And for that teacher who is not really into tech, as you mentioned, it can become, you know, overwhelming to see all of the new shiny out there and feeling, what do you use it? How do you use it? When do you use it? How do they declutter that noise and say, these are my four, these are my five that I am going to stick with for, you know, first nine weeks, second nine weeks, the whole semester or what have you. And once I master those, I may bring in another one. Yep. That's a great question. I think your district adopted learning management system is going to be the best place to start. And honestly, you can create good lessons using just the tools inside that platform. You don't have to introduce something else. Um, and, and so I would, I would start there. I, I do think I worry a lot about, um, there's so many tools that are out there available um, that if not vetted properly are not great. And we have to think about student data privacy. So I would reach out to the instructional technologist um, or you know, the technology department in your district, see if they have approved um, apps and tools that they recommend that have been vetted uh, for student data privacy. A lot of technology departments have done the heavy lifting there as far as can make those recommendations. Um, as a former second grade teacher, I think one of the first things I would do always is go straight to the terms of service. Um, when you have kids that are under 13, especially, there are a lot of things that I can't use if I'm going to be compliant there. Um, I can't have students creating accounts. So for me, when I was when I choose the tools in my toolbox, I'm using district adopted tools. And then I'm introducing something like Padlet where kids don't have to sign in. Um, and I'm very familiar with their uh, student data privacy uh, policies. Um, so I think that's one of the most important things to think about. But I also would encourage you to consider task first. Um, and, and I think that helps us kind of back off from feeling the need to introduce all these web tools. Because what I, I can even, I used to find myself doing too, it's like, oh, someone's using this tool. Let me figure out a way to use insert tool here. Um, instead of thinking this is the learning uh, objective I need to meet, what is the tool that's gonna help me get that done? Where when we focus tool first, we're, we're moving backwards. And so um, I think that makes it easier to stick to a limited number of tools too. So for me, I have LMS, Office Suite, Padlet, um, Flipgrid, because I like to create, I think it's important to create language rich um, activities that we don't want our learning online to be silent. And then um, Edpuzzle, because interactive video is something I can't do in those other platforms. I'm hard pressed to find a learning activity that I can't do with those five tools. Um, so when we think learning task first, learning objective first, um, and then what are the tools I know and have available to me that can get that done? I think that helps us not feel so overwhelmed too. Mm -hmm. So we, right before we go out, I just wanna ask you about classroom management. We have situations where either principals or districts are like, gotta have the camera on, or you can't have a hoodie, you, you, your pet can't be on, you can't, um, you can't eat, uh, you know, your mama can't come on, uh, which, I mean, 
uh, I mean, I mean, you're a guest in her home, you know what I mean? So, yeah. Uh, and you have those along with just the normalcy of what children would do in a classroom in terms of talking and making noise and making inappropriate uh, comments or gestures, et cetera. Uh, what does classroom management look like when your classroom now can, I mean, it, it's connected via the internet? Mm -hmm. that's, that's a great question. I don't know if this is the, the right answer or the one that districts would want me to say. If I'm, I'm glad I'm not in a district that feels the need to police children in their own homes about, um, but I imagine that if I was, I probably would just ignore that. Um, I, I had asked for forgiveness instead of permission. I, you know, I, I am definitely in the camp of, um, it's a whole different ball game when they're at their home. I don't care what they wear. I don't care where they're sitting to do their coursework. I don't care if their video's on or if little brother toddles by or, or, and you know what, the more pets that are in the video, I think the better. So, um, that would probably be my philosophy as far as, um, moving online. And I know that's easier said than done. And that's partially my personality that I would just do that. Um, I do think, I think one of the things, uh, management is different online. And I think part of the solution is we need to stop trying to replicate face-to-face -face instruction online. And when we stop trying to fit that square peg into a round hole, then a lot of that problem is fixed. If we rely, put so much priority on whole group instruction, and that is the primary vehicle for how learning happens, then there are a lot of things that are gonna be really hard to control and to manage in that space. Um, however, I think when we can leverage asynchronous learning in a really powerful way, that allows us to work more individually with students, develop relationships, which are at the core of classroom management really. Um, you can be strict, you can have all the rules in the world, but um, I, the, the best tool you have is to care about kids and to build relationships with kids. And when we can prioritize our live time in smaller groups or meeting individual needs, which I think moving online is a perfect space for that to happen. I think that solves a lot of the classroom management issues. And we can handle those things with grace individually, privately, um, instead of trying to figure it out in a whole group uh, class. All right, so before we go, Michelle, what is your advice for that teacher, I will, who is now a student in a teacher education program? And normally, teaching online and using tech tools in the way they're being used now, I just normally not covered in a traditional teacher education program because of what happened, you know, last from, you know, made or whatever, I would hope that, uh, that education programs have made the shift to implement these things so that teachers are better prepared into the environments they're gonna find themselves walking into. What is your advice for that person, for them to be ready to get started? 
not only mentally, not only you know mentally, but skill wise, so that they can have a successful start of their school year. Well, that's a tough one. Um, I think I think you're right. There's some shifts that are happening, but there are a lot of things that we're not prepared for until we get into a classroom. I think the same thing happened with us when we started teaching. There's stuff you just learn uh, when when you get there. But I think you probably would agree. For me, one of the most powerful things, especially when it comes to learning in a digital age, has been developing that professional learning network, mm-hmm. learning how to connect and network um, and find, we, we have experts at our fingertips, um, just getting on Twitter, our blogs. Um, I, I know that's probably something we talk about over and over, but Twitter's just, that's the best learning that you can get. It's a way to connect with just about anybody. And I think the earlier you can start to develop that network, uh, the better. There are tons of educators out there just willing to wrap their arms around you and support you and provide resources. And I think that's really great. And then going into it, who knows what the rest of this year has to throw at us or the future. But I think what's important is regardless of the environment in which learning is happening, relationships and humans are still the most important element. And if we can keep that centered, even when we're physically apart, then you're going to be just fine. That's all right. That's all right. Thank you, Michelle, for coming on and having uh, this conversation. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. You are welcome. Now, people, you know how I do this. This podcast episode will be on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Simplecast, Stitcher, and Spotify. I need you to subscribe, uh, leave your comments, and follow and share with everyone. The stars are great, but if you can leave me some reviews, that would be awesome. I'm trying to be found, and I'm also trying to get Oprah on the show, and I want her to know that I'm doing big things around here. Again, I'd like to thank my guest, Michelle Eaton, for coming on and talking about her book, The Perfect Blend, and in The show notes will be a link for you to go ahead and purchase that book, which I recommend you do so. And again, I'd like to thank you for checking out another episode of the Dr. Will Show, the mobile university for entrepreneurs. As always, people, invest in you, EDU, peace.